Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple II. Whether you're a longtime user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Welcome to another Open Apple Podcast. This is for December 2012. Um, last month, Ken was not with us. He was uh, out traveling around the world, I suppose, um, and I expected to have him back this time, but um, I, I guess maybe he got lost in the uh, Peruvian jungles. Maybe he was sacrificed uh, to uh, to an Aztec god or something. I don't really know. Mike! <sighs> Mike! Ken, it's you! What year is it? It's 2012! It worked! I'm back! I've made it! Oh. Did the DeLorean make it? No, the flux capacitor is completely burnt out. It was a completely a one-way trip, but it doesn't matter. I'm here! Oh, you're safe now in 1955. No! <laughs> Welcome back, Ken. Well, thank you, and thank you for doing a show with Jeff last month. I, it sounded great. Uh, yeah, I think we had a good time. It wasn't completely horrible, thanks to Jeff's presence there, so... And with me having held the August episode when you were unavailable, it kind of balances out. Yeah, it's it's uh, we we've sort of gone off format these these past few months, but I, I think we're back at least for at least for now. Well, we've got the year end roundtable coming up, which always looks different. So, well, always given that we've only done one of them. Well, no, <laughs> but I assume that the roundtable is going to be the roundtable, not you and me and a guest. That's correct. Yes, it does look different from a regular episode. I'm sorry, I, that is absolutely correct. I misunderstood no. you. But yeah, I think that on a month to month basis, this is the format that works best. You, me, and a guest. I really, I really like that. I think you and I know different things about the Apple II that balance each other pretty well. And then the guest keeps us from getting too comfortable and just talking about the same things over and over. Right. I think it's a good dynamic. Yeah. And I also like the way that this podcast highlights and strengthens the community because there are so many different individuals out there who do things different ways or do different things and, we all contribute something different to the Apple II community. I think it's interesting that this podcast gives us the opportunity to highlight that. Absolutely. There are a lot of voices out there, and it's nice to be able to to give a platform to as many as we can. And speaking of platforms, you have become quite the podcaster. In the time since I was last on this show, you didn't just do one episode of Open Apple. You did like a gajillion episodes of an entirely new podcast. That's right. The the No Quarter podcast, which uh, I'm actually doing with Carrington Vanston, another Apple II, uh, friend of ours, and this podcast has nothing to do with the Apple II at all. He and I get together once a week and we talk about a specific classic arcade video game. And it's, it's a, it's a totally different experience than what you and I do here. We, uh, hit the topic pretty quickly. We talk about our high scores, what we liked about the game, what we didn't like, get it a little bit into the pop culture surrounding whatever title we're talking about, and then we're on to the next one. Whereas with you and I, and I guess, we can really kind of spend some time and get in-depth on each one of our uh, topics. Yeah, the format of No Quarter reminds me a little bit about the Multiple Sclerosis podcast that I did this summer, which, you know, very short, 20 to 30 minutes, me and one other person, you're in, you're out. Yeah, exactly. And in fact, your format was sort of what inspired me to suggest that we use that for No Quarter. Oh, neat. Are you also using similar hardware and software like Audacity? Indeed, I am. Cool. Yeah. And I wouldn't say that your podcast has nothing to do with the Apple II, even though you're more focused on the original coin-op as opposed to any home ports. So a lot of the games you talk about are available for the Apple II. Sure, yeah. And, and we do mention you know, the various consoles and, and home computers that these titles were available on, uh, mostly. 
but we don't talk specifically about the versions of the ports unless they're particularly good or particularly bad. Especially in the case of the Atari 2600 version of Pac-Man. Yes, the, the, the no-quarter meme that just won't go away. <laughs> Mostly thanks to... Egan and Quinn Dunkey. Right, Egan. I was trying to remember that name. Yes. We're having a great time doing that. Um, and, you know, I, I also have a great time doing this. And uh, I definitely look forward to our, our time every month when we get to record this. And I look forward to each episode of No Quarter. I've listened to every single one, and I usually have some feedback to send about each one. Well, thank you. We definitely appreciate that. So anything else going on since I've last been on the show? Not so much, no. Obviously, we're into the holiday season, so, you know... Thoughts of friends and family and get-togethers have sort of taken time away from my retrocomputing hobbies. I did recently come across, I was at a, a local um, thrift store, and they have a, a book section there, and I just happened to be there when the guy was unloading, uh, he was he was taking the books from the back after they'd been sorted and putting them on the shelf to, to sell them. It was a huge collection of pretty much almost every Apple uh, programming title that was published in the 80s. There were 50 or 60 books, and I bought them all. So I've been going through those, and I, I stumbled across an interesting title, an uh, interesting series of titles called The Arcade Explorers. Have you heard of this? I th think you might have mentioned it as a potential topic for this podcast, but I haven't looked into it myself. Well, there were only three or four of these books posted, and they're, they're sort of similar to the old Choose Your Own Adventure books, you know, where you, at the bottom of the page... You have a choice to make, and depending on the choice that you make, that you turn to another page, and the 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 plot of the story forks off in different directions to different conclusions. Um, and Arcade Explorers is similar to this, except that instead of just choosing how you want the story to go, you actually enter bits of code, and then based on on these these short, simple Apple Soft Basic, you're building an Apple Soft Basic program basically as you, as you go through this through the book and at the end the, the the choices that you've made determine the code that goes into this program which then determines the outcome of the story that sounds awesome yeah uh, there were like I said there are only four of them I'm currently looking at uh, going through the uh, one called the electronic hurricane it's going to be my first time through that and I'll probably blog all about it I'm sorry did you say that this was a used book story that you were at yeah, it's it's a thrift store, a local thrift store, thrift store called ARC, uh, which is similar to Goodwill, and they have a book section. I see. Yeah, because it'd be impressive to find that collection at, say, Barnes and Noble. Indeed. Yeah, I don't. I don't <laughs> think this is. You're going to find this new anywhere. What about you, Ken? How have things been for you? I know you were out of the country for a while. Was it nice to get away? Yes, things were very exciting. The reason I was not on the last episode of Open Apple was not because I was too busy or because I was uninterested. On the contrary, it was very strange to listen to Open Apple having never heard it before. In <laughs> fact, in fact, I uh, spent eight days in Peru, South America. Oh, neat. What'd you do? First and foremost, and the primary reason I went, was to see Machu Picchu. And how was that? It was amazing. It is an Incan fortress, basically, built into the mountains. It's about 8,000 feet from sea level, built on a plateau between these two peaks. And I took about 400 photos, and it was just, looking at the photos now, I can't believe I was there, because it's just such an epic and mythical place. I also, they don't allow a ton of people in every day, and they allow even fewer to climb this peak that's at one end of the plateau. But I got tickets to do both, and looking down on this ancient city was just an amazing experience. That sounds like a wonderful time. Are you going to be sharing some of these photos with us? 
Well, I took over 400, and I don't want to post all of them because I, well, think, no, of course not. I, I think that would be a little obnoxious. So I need time to sort through them all. But, yes, I will be posting some. Well, I can't wait to see, and I'm sure our listeners will enjoy that too. Great. Thank you. I hope so too. So, to apply a technical perspective to the experience to keep our audience listen, uh, interested, I had bought two pieces of hardware specifically for this trip, both of which I've mentioned on this show before. The first was an iPad, and this was my first time reading an ebook. And how'd that go? I hated it. Really? I bought the Kindle version of World War Z, and not only did I not like the book, I did not like the experience of reading it in the Kindle app on the iPad. And the the not liking the experience had nothing to do with not liking the book? I don't think so, because I was reading the book as part of a book club, and we all got together two weeks later, and none of us liked the book. Huh, okay. So what what didn't you like about the experience? And I haven't read the book yet, so I can't speak to that, but what didn't you like about the ebook experience? Sometimes those little things, like the lack of a persistent page number to show me where I am. Uh, this book had footnotes, and if you clicked on the superscript number, it would bring you to the footnote. But then I found that to go back to the book, sometimes the page had reflowed in the meantime, so what was in the middle of the page is now at the top of the page. Huh. And I'm a very visual-oriented person. I need my books to stay persistent, so that if something is... In one place, it's always in that place. And I understand if I change the font or the font size, it should reflow, but that's not what I was doing. That's interesting. I've never, never had that happen before. Are you using the Kindle app or an actual Kindle? No, I, I have a, the iPad with a Kindle app. That's strange. I wonder if, because I, I know that you know when they, they convert these, it's not just a simple matter of, sca- a matter of uh, scanning the pages into a PDF and, and posting it to their, their application. They actually, especially if it has footnotes, they have to do some work to, to make it, uh, make that work, obviously. And I wonder if maybe the, the team or the person that, uh, who, who did that particular book just didn't know what they were doing. But then again, it sounds like if, if pages are reflowing, that maybe that's more a function of the app itself than any particular title. I'm also not willing to discount user error. Okay. To be honest. But also, just reading a regular book, I like being able to stick my finger in into the book and use that as a placeholder while I flip back to see something else that I'd already read and then flip back to where I was. Yeah, there is that. I mean, I understand that you can search a Kindle book in a way that you can't a real book, but it's just not the same. Sure. Also on the iPad, alternating with reading the zombie book, I was playing a zombie game, that being Organ Trail. Oh, okay. And how was that? That was a lot of fun. I'd played the free Flash version a couple of years ago, but the new iOS version, which was Kickstarter-funded, was a completely different game. I had to play it four or five times before I finally made it across the country in a post-zombie apocalypse North America. But it was a lot of fun, very reminiscent of Oregon Trail, but also very much its own game. Neat. I'm, I'm glad that they managed to pull that off. Me too. Uh, as I mentioned, the other piece of hardware I bought for this trip was the DSLR camera, a Canon T2i Rebel. And this dovetails into another piece of hardware I bought recently, which is the brand new Nintendo Wii U video game system. And how do those two fit together? Well, I bought the Nintendo Wii U, but I'm not as enthusiastic a gamer as I used to be where I'd fly home and tear the box open and spend the whole day playing with it. I'm a little bit more patient now. And I was thinking, well, I have this new camera, which is supposed to be good for video, which I've never really tried before. This seems like a good opportunity. So I brought the Wii U home put the camera on the tripod, aimed it at the Wii U, and I did an unboxing video. And? 
Well, I don't understand unboxing videos. I, the the genre does not appeal to me. I don't want to watch somebody open a box. Do you, how do you feel about them? Yeah, I I find that very uninteresting. If it's a historical product, like when Dan Budiak bought an Apple IIc brand new off eBay, that's a different story. Sure, yeah, and, and in 20 years, you know, it might be fun to watch a Wii U unboxing, but right now, I, there's no interest. Like, these people that do the, the iPad unboxings and things like that, I just I couldn't care less. Yeah, neither could I, but I figured this is the day that the Wii U has come out. It's the first video game system I bought on launch day since the original Wii six years ago. I'll never get another opportunity like this, so I did an unboxing video. I figured it'll be one of dozens that will be appearing on YouTube that day. So I go ahead, I upload it to YouTube, and as of today, two weeks later, has over a quarter of a million page views. Wow. Yeah. Somebody likes it. I guess, and I... I'm getting an email to notify me of every comment that's been posted. There have been over 1,200 comments posted. <laughs> and for the most part, people have been surprisingly polite. They're actually interested and intrigued by the video and the Wii U. Very few of them are actually calling me names. Well, I would think that, that because this is such a specific, uh, almost a fetish, I guess, if you want to call it that, uh, the people who would be, who would be watching it would probably be the ones who would actually enjoy it. You know, there are some videos that, that you go out there and you watch because you want to hate them and you want to call Rebecca Black names because of that Friday song and things like that. And that's fine. But I, I don't think that, that people are going to, to sit through an unboxing video, video, uh, video and then go, you idiot, why did you do this? A few of them did. Like one guy said, oh, well, you opened it upside down. I'm like, so? Well, there's there's trolls everywhere, but you know, I I think something like this would attract less of them. Yeah. So yeah, just the the quality of the responses and the number of viewers has just totally baffled me. I have hundreds of new subscribers, and I'm wondering what they're gonna think when I upload an Apple II video to my channel next, which I sometimes do. Well, that's probably where you'll get all the hate and all the unsubscribes. Yes. <laughs> oh well. Something else I've done recently was conduct a one-hour workshop at a local graduate school for their library information science students about how to use WordPress. And how did that go? I guess I got a higher-than-usual attrition rate where very few people who actually signed up for the course showed up. Hmm. Uh, but I, I'm told it went well because another college in the Boston area has asked me to reprise the session for their faculty, which is kind of cool. Well, somebody liked it then. Yeah. And my life seems to be continuing to take a turn for the academic and fortunately i don't mean that in the sense of trivial <laughs> uh you know that's that's just par for the course for me this is something sure. different uh next semester i'm going to be teaching an undergraduate course in electronic publishing oh i'm interested tell me more <laughs> well i don't have the syllabus or the curriculum yet <laughs> i have a sample syllabus from other professors who have taught the course and who will still be there next semester just teaching other things but I am hoping to put together a 13 to 14 week semester long course about how to do websites, WordPress, podcasting, ebooks, and a variety of other multimedia topics. Well, you'll have to tell us all about it as you go through it. As long as I can stay a week ahead of my students, I think I'll be fine. <laughs> there you go, yes. <clears throat> but you know, that WordPress workshop that I conducted made me think, this session was very much informed by the WordPress session I did at Kansas Fest this year. I know that you have had ideas for Kansas Fest sessions that, for one reason or another, we were unable to execute. Have you ever considered offering those same topics as presentation ideas for your local Denver Apple Pie users group? Uh, no, I have not. I bet that a, t a community like that would be desperate for content, would be happy to receive your submissions. Perhaps. Uh, part of the problem is that they've moved actually further away from me. They were already, you know, 
quite a distance and, and I've moved since then. Um, so getting there is, is less convenient than it used to be. And I don't know, there's just something about, uh, a group of people who didn't know that Apple made anything before the Macintosh. Okay. Now it is true that we heard that sentiment last summer, but as far as I know, that only came from one of their attendees. Yes. I, I think you're correct. I was, uh, maybe being a little too hard on them. Um, <laughs> I, that's nothing. I, I guess it's not something that I've just ever really considered. I'd have to think about that. Yeah, I mean, it's just a neat place. It's sort of like a, a sandbox to test some ideas before you bring them to Kansas Fest. Sure. Uh, and I know that this is even farther away for you, but I found that Boulder has a much more active and engaged and hipper Apple users group. Interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, I went to one of their sessions this past August, and the number of attendees who showed up and the uh, content that was presented and just the uh, format and organization that they showed was all significantly different from the Denver group. Well, maybe I'll have to check that out. Yeah, it might be worth a hike up there one night. Sure. Well, while I was gone from the podcast, I did notice that somebody had something nice to say about it. We got a review on iTunes from a user named Eastmarch. He submitted this actually back in September. And I just briefly want to share this review. He wrote, there are a lot of things happening in the Apple II world, and the hosts explore each of these in a way that's interesting and entertaining. Most episodes feature an interview with someone historically important or currently noteworthy. It's fun and a great way to feel connected to this community. Well, kind words from East March. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you. And that ties back to what we were saying earlier about involving the community in this podcast and making this their show. And I think we have a member of the community to talk to this month. Who are we talking to, Ken? Let's find out. This is Dennis Doms of the old Open Apple, and you're listening to Open Apple. Mike, if I were to say that you are a terrible nerd, what would you take that to mean? Well, I would be uh, alternately very offended because you called me terrible, and then I would be happy because you called me a nerd. <laughs> I've been debating whether or not it means that you are an incompetent nerd or whether you are an incorrigible nerd. I think I prefer incorrigible to incompetent. I can see that word being used to describe you. Incompetent? <laughs> <laughs> incorrigible. Oh, okay. Well, thank you. But let's bring on the man who may have the answer to this age-old question, Mr. Kevin Savitz. Hi, Kevin. Hey, how you doing? Hello, Kevin. How are you? I'm great. Excellent. We're all fantastic, and we're all terrible. Now, of course, Terrible Nerd refers to the title of your autobiography, which I just finished reading. And since you are on the show, and this is where we ask you to introduce yourself, I'd like you to do a dramatic reading from your book. Really? No. You're kidding, because <laughs> I didn't want to do that. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a geek. I'm a kind of a prototypical geek. Uh, grew up in the 1970s and 1980s, and proud to be one of the, the people who was the, the first generation of kids that had computers that fit on a desk as opposed to taking up a room at a university or, or, uh, or corporation. We are a lucky generation to, to have been, have access to computers that we could have in our home. I'm just another nerd and, uh, I have a couple of, uh, nerdy websites and I decided to, to write down, uh, my, my, experience and nerdiness in, into this book. Anybody who wants to know more about the mysterious Mr. Savitz can read Terrible Nerd, now available in paperback and ebook. But why don't you give us a abbreviated edition by telling us what is your background, especially with the Apple II? Now, most people may know you from sites like Atari Archives or Atari Magazines, but 
we don't invite Atari people onto the show. You have to be an Apple II guy. Christmas Day, uh, 1984, I got an Apple IIc, and I loved it. It was great. It was a great machine. And uh, I played uh, Infocom games on it and programmed in BASIC and crashed into the monitor on a daily basis, therefore feel somewhat qualified to be here today. And what was it you liked about the Apple II compared to the many other machines that were available in that era? Uh, the Apple was uh, was kind of a different beast compared to the other machines I had played with. Um, previously, I had some experience with a, a, a TI-99, and compared to that, the Apple was a, a monster. I mean, we had 128K of memory. And, uh, it was fast. The basic was speedy compared to the TI, which seemed like it was always going at a snail's pace. I liked the, I loved the games on the Apple and, uh, I really kind of dug into some programming on it. And it was a, a great, uh, entry into, into, uh, to the world of Apple computers. Yeah. I gave a presentation about the history of the Apple II and its hardware and software back in June at a demo party. And afterward, the organizer came up to me and said, that was very enlightening because I've never actually thought of the Apple II as a games machine before. And that stunned me because I think for many Apple II users, those are their fondest memories of the Apple II is the games. Absolutely. Load runner, chop lifter, hard to beat. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, as I mentioned, you went on to find some internet fame with the Atari but before that, you were writing for a whole variety of publications on a variety of topics and machines. Yeah, I was a, a freelance technology writer for 13 or 14 years, starting in 1992 or so. No, 1995 or so. I don't know, somewhere there. And uh, I wrote for – if you name a computer magazine, I probably wrote for it at some point, Computer Shopper and Microtimes and big, big and small magazines uh, all over – United States. That was enjoyable. I get getting to play with uh, lots and lots of different hardware and software for many years. Interview interesting people. It was good. Did you interview anybody related to the production of the Apple II, like Steve Jobs or Steve Wozniak or Randy Wigginton? No. Oh, really? Well, you. I mean, with that many celebrities on your list, you must have been actively avoiding them. No, I just you know wrote about what I was assigned most of the time. I I did in, uh, interview the the man who invented the computer mouse. So that's somewhat related, I think, to uh, the Macintosh. That would be Doug Engelbart, right? That's right. Excellent. Yeah, I've seen his YouTube video series. What is it, The Mother of All Demos? I don't know. I haven't seen it. Oh, I think that's what it's called. I'll, we'll put a link in the show notes. I know uh, David Grealish talked about it on RCR a year or two back. And you were, you've been on RCR, haven't you? Yes, one time. Yeah, the Retro Computing Roundtable. We were thinking about getting you on our show, but then they snapped you up first and were like, oh, we don't want to be copycats, so we'll put Kevin on our never-appear-on-open-apple list. And somehow I, I managed to, to get off that list, and <laughs> here I am today. Well, it's been a year, and people's memories are short, so here you are. So you were a writer, a freelance columnist for many years, and that doesn't seem to be how you would describe yourself today. Are you... Uh, self-employed? Are you a publisher? Are you still generating unique original content? Yeah, all of the above. Um, I I am the owner of a, of a business that creates useful little websites. And so I, I create all sorts of content, but uh, it's not articles usually. I create a lot of printable documents and templates that people can print out. Uh, I have a site that lets people send faxes from their computers. Uh, I, I am a, a web publisher. 
I remember back in January, I posted a Facebook status update saying, I have a problem. I just thought of another idea for our website and now own another domain. And you wrote back and said, Ken, you don't have that problem. I have that problem. <laughs> yeah, I, bu- I bought another domain yesterday. I'm, I'm, up, I'm over 600. I've pared it down quite a bit, actually. I do have a lot of domain names. I hope that not all of them require daily maintenance. No, I have about 100 active sites and maybe another 200 of the domains that I have are very similar domains that point to the active sites. And many of the others are, I'm holding for a rainy day. So you're a domain squatter? No, not at all. It's, it's, uh, it's sites that I, I may actively, uh, I may create one day. I would like to create one day, but I can only do so much at a time. And, uh, I, I would rather hold on to a domain name and pay that $9 a year for when I, I might want it than pay some domain squatter a thousand or more dollars in the future when I decide it's time to, to do the site for sure. Right, because that's the difference between what you're doing and a squatter. A squatter has no intention of doing anything with the domain name other than reselling it. Right, right. And all, I, if I, in fact, just this week I had some domains expire, I decided, okay, it was it was a butterfly that I'm not going to chase, so I'm just going to let it go. And uh, then someone else can grab them, either create a site or squat on them, up to them. What registrar or hosting service do you use, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, my registrar is uh, name.com. I moved everything from GoDaddy after that whole SOPA mess, and I've uh, been happy with name. And uh, for my, my hosts, I use uh, Liquid Web Storm On Demand. And you've, you've been satisfied with that service? Yes, I've been with them for several years, and I like them because they're kind of uh, virtual machines, so... If uh, I can keep different sites on different machines, but then if a site starts to get really popular and the load starts to get heavy on the server, I can literally reboot it with more memory, and when it comes up 15 minutes later, it's a bigger, faster box, and I didn't have to move all my files to a new server, which is great. Right. I think DreamHost has something similar that I use, but I'm using it on a vastly different scale. I own maybe 20 domains, so that's just a fraction of yours. And I was wondering what sort of service you would use that would scale so well. So Liquid Web, good to know. Mm-hmm. Now, one of your sites, as I mentioned, is Atari Archives, Atari Magazines. That is a site where, uh, similar to members of the Apple II and larger virtual computing community, you are hosting scans of various publications. Yes, uh, primarily not scans. I, I started the, these projects before PDFs made sense. Um, so we went the hard route when we started the project, which we, we scanned the articles from uh, different computer magazines, and then we OCR'd them and turned them to HTML. So they're very searchable, um, fast to access, and uh, you don't have to, to download and slog through a you know 300 megabyte scan of a magazine um, in order to read them. So we have uh, the the Antic Magazine and Start, which are Atari magazines, uh, a lot from Creative Computing, a uh, whole bunch of whole bunch of other magazines, and at Atari Archives, there's like 30 or more different uh, classic computing books about the Atari and 6502 computers and uh, computer games. So, despite the domain name, it's not solely Atari. No, it started off as just Atari and slowly expanded. So do one of your 600 domains, is one of them a more accurate alias like Retro Computing Archives? I believe I have ClassicComputingMagazineArchive.com, which just redirects to AtariMagazines.com. But 
that's really a, a mouthful. It doesn't really roll off the tongue. No, it doesn't. No, no. I've heard you mention on RCR, the Retro Computing Roundtable podcast, as well as in your book, the different philosophies as regards to approaching copyright. You prefer to obtain permission from the original copyright holder before publishing anything online, whereas the opposite end of the sector would be like Jason Scott, where he just grabs everything, puts it up, and asks for forgiveness later as opposed to permission beforehand. Right. But there's another element at play here that I'm seeing a lot of different camps in. As you mentioned, you didn't you started when PDFs weren't viable because they were huge and dial-up took a long time to download, so you're doing HTML. And I can totally see how some people would feel that that violates the integrity of the original product. You You have modified it. It is no longer what it was, and you haven't preserved its essence. So... Now that PDFs are viable, what value does HTML serve? And what does it mean to historians who are interested in that original edition? You're right. Things definitely have changed. Um, PDFs are viable now. And maybe the way I've been doing it isn't necessary anymore. I'm kind of at a crossroads there, and I, I haven't quite decided what to do. But there's still definitely some benefit to having the information as text. My philosophy when I started the site was, okay, the layout of the magazines is cool, but I don't want to get hung up on on fetishizing the, the look of the magazine. The the content is the important stuff. So that's why we started OCRing and, and just turning to text. So yep, the, the, the look and feel of the magazine is, is are absolutely gone. However, you can search in Google or you know, your favorite search engine, and you are very likely to find content that's that's full text as opposed to buried in a PDF somewhere. And uh, also, just because I put it up as text doesn't mean that someone else can't put it up as PDF. Or in, in, in many cases, I still have the original scans, and so the the look and feel of the magazine is not lost at all. It could go up on Jason Scott Archive or 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 anywhere else. There, there's more than one way to do it. Are there magazines for which you are hosting both HTML and PDF editions? No, I don't have any PDFs uh, up at this time. And I should. I, I, I need to go back into the archives on my, my file server and find out what I have there and uh, convert it to, to PDF and get them online. Also, when you say that you OCR the content, are you referring strictly to the editorial content? Are you converting the advertisements and covers and the like as well? Uh, the, the covers, we cover images. We do cover images and editorial content. And when we can, program code. Uh, that's very hard to OCR. But sometimes we can find someone else has already typed in the code or the magazine came with a floppy disk. Or sometimes we just go through the painstaking work of OCRing the code. And advertisements? Typically, we don't do advertisements. Okay. Because those have some historical value. It's There's some great it's, stuff, it's absolutely. It's interesting to look back and see a 10-megabyte hard drive for only $3,000. I mean, that <laughs> has historical significance because it shows how far we've come. Absolutely. And, yeah, honestly, the advertisements are some of the most interesting things when you're paging through an old computer magazine. Right, right. Uh, one last question about on this topic. You said that sometimes we go through the painstaking effort to type in the code. Who is we? Uh, me and and the, the volunteers who have worked on the project over the years, they come and go. But there's been there's all sorts of folks who uh, say, okay, I'm interested in doing this magazine. What do you want me to do? And so I'll send them a magazine, or they have it, and they will uh, OCR it and put it online. Great. So getting back to the Apple II, what happened to that two C that you had once upon a time? 
I had it for a number of years, um, and I eventually sold it to someone my my mom knew uh, when my stepdad brought home a uh, a PCXT. When you said goodbye to the Apple IIc, was that your the end of your relationship with the Apple II? For a while, I moved on to the to the PCXT, and and but then later, when I got into retro computing, I have got another Apple II. I mean, there's there's an Apple II, uh, unenhanced Apple IIe on my desk right now, and so my relationship with the Apple certainly has not ended. There's a CFFA card in there, and and I uh, loaded up with programs and dabble with games from time to time. Excellent. Well, I'm glad that you've rejoined the Apple II community. Me too. Get what's new and exciting in retro computing with two news. We mentioned this in the user login section that we have a published author on the show today, and that book would be a terrible nerd. So you are still writing, Kevin, and you're publishing because this book is a publication of, is it Savitz Publishing? Yes, uh, it's published by my publishing company. And did you use Amazon CreateSpace to make it into a real book? Yes, I used Create Space, and they man, they did a nice job. I I, I uh, I'm just really impressed with with how the book looks. Nice shiny cover and nice paper, and print on demand is just magical. Yeah, the black and white photos in the book are they actually came out pretty nicely. Yes, they did. Yeah, and I just I love the cover. I had uh, I, I asked uh, uh, Dave at blogography.com to to create a cover for me, and he just gave me a gorgeous cartoony cover of uh, me holding an Atari and a floppy disk, a floppy uh, five and a quarter floppy disk. And and it just looks so good with the great space uh, printing. Very happy with it. How long did it take you to write the book? Uh, almost exactly a year. I started writing it with absolutely no plan. I just had a couple of stories I thought I should write. So I wrote a little bit, posted it to Facebook, got some feedback, wrote a little more. And then I kind of made the decision that... Uh, if I hit 50,000 words, then it was a book. So I hit 50,000 words, and I went, wow, I'm not done yet. So I kept going. And and when I hit uh, 60,000 words, I realized I was about done. So then I had to do the difficult job of like actually turning it into a uh, cohesive story from start to finish because uh, I just wrote it in whatever random order I wanted to. If you're going to write a book, I highly suggest making an outline first, like I didn't. Yes, Always a good idea to have a plan. Now, as I mentioned, it's available in paperback and ebook. Any thoughts as to doing a uh, audiobook? I've started recording an audiobook. I'm into chapter two. I decided I don't like hearing the sound of my own voice, and the editing process is uh, is laborious. Yeah. So I'm working on it. I don't know how long it will take. Have you considered trying to get Will Wheaton to read your book? <laughs> no. Oh. That's too bad. I've he's done other audiobooks and he's excellent. Yes, he has. I, uh, yeah, I, I, a friend of mine is a actor guy, a famous actor guy, and I, I kind of mentioned finding someone to read it for me, and he's just like, "No, Kevin, you. This is your story. You you have to read it yourself. No one else can do it justice like you can." So, at that point, I took his advice and bought a microphone and decided that Will nor no one else would get to read it. It would have to be me. Great. Well, I look forward to hearing it. But you are not the only person publishing retro computing books these days. There is a new book out that is tangentially related to the Apple II and I think worth mentioning. 
the title is quite the mouthful. I'll try to get it right. It's 10 print CHR string 205 comma 5 plus RND 1 colon go to 10. And it is published by a medley of authors, 10 of them, in fact, including Nick Montfort, who's previously written Twisty Little Passages, an academic work on interactive fiction. I met one of the other authors, uh, Patsy, at a digital humanities meetup in Boston back in June, and then they had a book signing in Harvard Square just last month. Now, this book is about the line of code that is the title, which runs on a Commodore 64 to produce a uh, med- a sort of geometric, randomly generated maze. It's a kind of a, a labyrinth made up of only two characters. Right, the slash and the backslash. And there is a version of that code that will run on the Apple II, but due to the character set on the Apple II, the slash and the backslash don't quite connect, so it's not a linear maze in the way that the Commodore 64 maze is. Right, it doesn't look quite as nifty. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I I booted, I turned on my, my uh, Atari 800 today, and I typed in the program and I had to do a couple a, a tiny little modification to make it work but it looks looks pretty fun on the on the on the Atari 800 too. Now I understand that you have a copy of this book? Yes, it's right here. And that's the hard copy as opposed to the PDF version which it is also available for free online. Right, yeah, the PDF's free and uh, the hard copy is not. Have you gotten to reading it yet? No, I've I've glanced through I'm looking through it right now. I look at the it looks beautiful. Uh the, the pictures inside are 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 gorgeous. It's a it's a good-looking book. And I look forward to reading it. The 10 authors collaborated in wiki fashion to produce this book. The question I asked for them at the Q&A was, do you remember who wrote what anymore? And they really don't. But apparently they wrote an entire book on this one line of code by looking at it from every different angle, from a technological perspective, a historical perspective, an artistic or even poetic perspective. So the topics that the book covers really run the gamut, just based on this one seed. It's such a unusual concept that I haven't actually gotten my head around it yet, and I would probably have to sit down and read the book to really understand it. It's an elegant piece of code. I mean, it's just one little line that just generates uh, spews output that is really, really quite beautiful and artistic and looks like more than it is. Mm-hmm. Yes, the authors say on their website that they consider randomness and regularity in computing and art, the maze in culture, the popular basic programming language, and the highly influential Commodore 64 computer uh, within this book. And all proceeds from the purchase of the book benefit a charity called PlayPower, whose subtitle is Learning Games for Radically Affordable Computers. Well, I would call the Commodore 64 radically affordable. As in cheap. <laughs> Just kidding. Now, now. Kevin, you may not have read Ten Print, which is the shorthandle for this book, but are you familiar with the band Ape It Weapon? Do you listen to their music? Yes, yes, I am. I, I uh, sometimes when I when I go for a run, I like to listen to their their music uh, in my in my headphones. Oh, that's interesting. It has a good beat to keep you moving. It does. Yeah, interesting. I've never tried that, and I by that I don't mean listening to their music while running. I mean running. Well, Ape It Weapon is one of my favorite chiptune bands. They have produced a variety of music over the last 15 years using retro computers as their main instruments. And they have recently released a collection of music that is 56 tracks. And you can get all of them for just $20. I believe this is every song they've written across all their many different albums. So it's one mega album called the wow. Ape It Weapon Collection 1998-2012. to 2012. It's a pretty good deal. 
I think that comes out to about 36 cents per song, which is a third of what iTunes charges. So yeah, I would call that a good deal. They're available on iTunes, but this collection that I'm looking at is on Bandcamp. So I definitely recommend checking it out because it is uh, good music. I've reviewed one of their albums in Juice GS and gave it a positive review. And they were actually a little bit stunned to see that review. They didn't realize that anybody who wrote for Juice GS cared about chiptune music. But I do. I'm a fan. Yay. <laughs> yeah, it's good music. And I think they've even provided soundtracks to a couple of different games. We've mentioned them on the show before. Moving back into the world of print, or what used to be print, we have a story that was submitted to us by Ed Lundberg. He sent me a link to a story at the Register website, and the headline on this story is The Early Days of PCs as Seen Through Dead Trees, and this is a look at the history of computer magazines. It is a seven-page story all about how computers have been represented in Time, Macworld, uh, PC World, Byte. CompuSave, and a whole bunch of other different publications. And of course, that should be of interest to the two of you because that has been one of your biggest contributions to the retro computing community has been preserving that history. Yeah, this is an interesting little article. It seems like they just sort of uh, picked out interesting tidbits from, to quote, particular magazines uh, in, in history of different computer magazines. It certainly doesn't seem to be very comprehensive, but it's it's interesting. Yeah, I think a comprehensive article would probably be more appropriate for a more specialized publication, but the Register, as far as I know, isn't. Uh, Boing Boing is uh, Cory Doctorow's website. It's a very popular uh, tech news and discussion website. And every now and then they dig back into the history of early computers. Uh, they kind of touch on some of the topics that we like to talk about here on Wednesday, November 14th, an article is posted called Remembering the Easy Key Keyboard Overlay for the Apple II. Um, and this is, this looks like a, um, an over, most of the overlays that I've seen for the Apple II tend to go around the keys and they tend to be associated with, uh, word processing and, and business, uh, docu uh, business applications like Cork had the word juggler, which had a, an overlay that went around the keys. And I think you could get one for word perfect too, but I never seen one that was related to uh, educational software like this. And this one's a little bit different because it, it directly sits over the keys itself. I was not familiar with keyboard overlays at all for the Apple II. In fact, the only ones I can think of have been for Atari video game systems like the 5200 and the Jaguar. I'm looking at, they have some close up shots here uh, of this thing. And it looks like the way this is organized is, at least for one of the applications, it asks you questions. For example, you, you play the U.S. President game, um, and you can play it without any typing or spelling because it asks you questions, and the answers are printed on the key overlays themselves, and so you just hit the corresponding answer. But you still have to find the answer, and it doesn't look like they're necessarily listed in alphabetical order. That's right. So it would be the same as if they had put up a list of all the presidents on the screen, and just said, push A for this guy, B for this guy. Sure. Kevin, were keyboard overlays popular on other platforms? I've never seen them on the Atari, nor any other computer that uh, springs to mind. The, the TI-99 TI had had uh, like a little strip that went over the function keys on some programs that would tell, remind you what the function keys did, but it wasn't a complete overlay. So it sounds like these were actually... Rather unusual. I don't know if that means rare, but at least unusual. And very single use. And you're not going to use a, presiden a presidential overlay with many programs. I wouldn't think so. And we have some more history here. Uh, this time, 
from Time. They have some early Apple One photos, I understand. And this Time story actually was made possible by Facebook because Paul Terrell, who ran the bite shop in Mountain View, California back in 1975, that is when and where Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak were looking to offload their first batch of Apple One computers. And Terrell, if I recall correctly, and I'm sure many people, both listening right now and later, will correct me if I'm wrong, he pre-ordered the Apple One by giving Jobs and Wozniak the money they needed to go buy the parts to actually build the machine. Terrell was going through his archives and found some Polaroid photos, fittingly enough for the 1970s, that he had taken of those first Apple One units that he purchased before he turned around and resold them. And he put those photos on Facebook. Harry McCracken of the Technologizer site on Time saw these photos and with his, and with Terrell's permission reposted them to time.com so that people within and without Facebook can see these photos. And they're amazing because these may possibly be the earliest known photos ever of the Apple One. These hadn't even hit consumers' hands and homes yet. These were still on the store shelves. And Terrell was already having the foresight to document this new product that he was selling, which would go on to change the world. Neat. <laughs> I thought so. Yeah, they're really cool shots. Looking at bare boards that look like they've got maybe hand-wired power supplies and hooked up to a a monitor that's not in a case and it it's uh definitely interesting that's one of the things i love about the apple one and even its replicas like vince brio makes is that they look like a computer as opposed to a utility or an appliance which is what steve jobs wants them to look like this shows just how rudimentary those early computers were and yet what an amazingly forward it was from the big iron that we used to work with for the decades past. Kevin, do you have any Apple One clones? No, I do not. I have my uh, an enhanced 2E on my desk, and I think that's that's all I have in my, my, my Apple II collection at this point. Well, you know, if you were to come to Kansas Fest, you could probably build an Apple One with Vince Briel. That sounds like fun. Is it enough fun to get you to come to Kansas Fest? I would love to come, actually. Uh, our summers tend to be pretty packed with, with travel and, and doing stuff with the kids. But uh, if, if I'm available that week, I'd love to be there. Awesome. Well, as Mike and Jeff mentioned last month, Kansas Fest 2013 is July 23rd to the 28th. Uh, th- if I understand correctly, they will have a announcement about keynote speaker very soon. In the meantime, they made an announcement just this past week about a way to help Kansas Fest. If you are doing your holiday shopping on Amazon.com, Instead of typing Amazon.com into your location bar, instead go to helpkfest.org. That will automatically redirect you to Amazon, and you can immediately buy all the same products you were already going to buy at the same prices you were already going to spend from the same store you're already going to shop at, except Kansas Fest will get a cut of the action, and they'll use proceeds from those sales to buy prizes or T-shirts or anything else that may otherwise be incorporated into the registration fee. So this promotion that they're running will help keep prices down for everybody. So you go to helpkfest.com and then and then you buy a copy of Terrible Nerd by Kevin Savitz. Is that right? Helpkfest.org. Yes. Or .org. All right. You can buy Terrible Nerd or man, you are really pushing that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really good book. I want people to read it. You gave it a 5-star rating on Goodreads. Man, that was just blatant. Anyway, yes, you can buy that book or Ultima, the Ultimate Collector's Edition by Steve Eman, or the new Apple II User's Guide by Dave Finnegan, all of which were published through CreateSpace, or DVDs, TVs, cars, anything else that you want from Amazon. 
Uh, some people don't like shopping at Amazon. They feel that it competes with brick and mortar stores and that's absolutely fine. You don't have to shop at Amazon. Uh, you shouldn't shop at Amazon unless you were already going to anyway. I'm not going to make the case of whether or not you, you aren't shopping there, you should, or if you are shopping there, you shouldn't. But if you do shop at Amazon, please go to helpkfest.org first, and that will create a better experience for all Apple II users. This advertisement brought to you by the Kansas Fest Committee. All rights reserved. Void where prohibited. Do not taunt. Happy fun ball. <laughs> well, Time recently published another story on their website, which is totally up Mike and Carrington's alley. But since Carrington isn't here, I leave it to you, Mike. They've also published the all-time 100 video games list. Uh, there's not a whole lot of interest there for Apple II or any 8-bit computer users. In fact, the titles from the 70s, there's only there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. There's a few more from the 80s, um, but there's a lot more in the, the 90s and 2000s that, that don't apply to us. Uh, Apple II users will obviously recognize titles like Zork, Castle Wolfenstein, uh, Frogger, Oregon Trail, and a few others. Uh, Ultima 4, Quest of the Avatar, made an appearance on the list. Um, it... It looks like this is kind of a scattershot selection of titles, though. I, um, I'm i not a console gamer, so some of these titles are not familiar to me. Um, what, what about you, Kevin? When I heard about this list, I was just like, oh, here we go. It's just going to be terrible, and people are going to be complaining about they left out this or that. So I, I came started looking at this list with a negative attitude, but as I looked at it, I kind of went... You know what? They did their research. They they made a lot of good choices. And while there is room to, to quibble here and there, I think that they put some thought into this list. And uh, it's hard to really argue with a lot of it. They put important things on there uh, like, uh, like Zork, um, like Mule, which I was surprised and happy to see on there, uh, Super Mario Brothers, and then you know, Hunt the Wumpus and Pong. Uh, you know, I could quibble. They don't have Choplifter on there, uh, which is one of my favorite Apple games. They don't have, uh, Parappa the Rapper, which not an Apple game, but really kind of a seminal game that, that led to, uh, Dance Dance Revolution and Guitar Hero and that kind, that type of game. Anyway, someone did their research and I think they put together a good list. I'm just astonished that we've now had two episodes of Open Apple where we talk about how great Parappa the Rapper is. <laughs> There's no still, logical reason still for that. Know what that is. I didn't say it was great. I just said it was. It led to other things. <laughs> <laughs> I see. So it's valuable for the precedent it set, not for st- right. standing on. Actually, I, I barely played it. it. When I played it, it was. It did seem fun, but I. Oh, don't back away from it now. Don't be embarrassed. You loved uh, it. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking through the '80s list here, and there are actually quite a few titles here that that showed up on the Apple II. Uh, Wizardry, uh, Load Runner. Um, Leisure Suit Larry. Yep, there's there's a bunch here. So there's there's a good connection, I think, to the Apple II. You know, one former guest of this show, Wayne Arthurton, recently came across a trove of Apple II software, and he called me and left me a voice message and said, Ken, there was a whole bunch of games in here, and there was a Leisure Suit Larry, which I thought you might like. And I'm like, why'd you pick out that one? Why do you associate that game with me? <laughs> Leisure Suit Ken? I guess... Uh, Land of the Ken Lizards? I don't know. <laughs> or Lounge Kens? Anyway. All right, I think that kicks off the part of the Open Apple where we talk about games, games, and more games. We always have games. Oh, yes. 
And uh, as Dane Eater told us, that's fine because we are gamers at heart. Indeed. So let's see. There was a Kickstarter that Sean Fahey emailed me about called Elite Dangerous. And this appears to be an update to a classic game called Elite that I think maybe you have talked about on the show before, Mike. Yeah, we talked about Elite way back when when <clears throat> I they the original programmers of the of Elite uh, back on the eight bit platforms uh, made all the titles available uh, as free downloads to to anybody who wanted to play them. Now you had to have either the original hardware or an emulator because they were the original games. They weren't remakes like this one was or this one's going to be. Yeah, it looks like this is a British Kickstarter, which I've never seen before because the amount of money they're asking for is given in pounds. They want one and a quarter million pounds and they've raised 633,000 pounds so far and they have until about January 4th to finish their fundraising. Well, here's hoping that they make their goal. Can you remind me what kind of a game Elite was? Elite is a, a space sim. Uh, it's based on the the wireframe. I don't know if it's true vector graphics, but it's it's the wireframe role playing where you fly between planets and you trade for you engage in space combat and you trade for goods and, and um, make money and try to build yourself a little empire. Sounds like the BBS game Trade Wars. It does. I, I don't. I've never played Trade Wars, so I, I I can't comment on on how similar they are. It looks like Elite came out for the Apple II, the 8-bit Nintendo, Commodore 64, Atari ST. Are you familiar with it, Kevin? No, I, I played Trade Wars back in the day, but I've never heard of Elite until today. But yeah, it does seem similar. So we have two Trade War players and one Elite player on here, and never shall the twain meet. Apparently not. Swell. Looks like another game has been remade, and this one is for free online as a Flash game. It's called Save the Day, and it is a remake of Choplifter. You can play it online at turbulence.com. Link will be in the show notes. And there is a YouTube trailer available as well. I haven't played it, but if it is like Choplifter, it should be great. In fact, there was a Choplifter game that came out for Xbox back in February or so of this year, which I've been wanting to download and play, but there are just so few hours to play all these fantastic games. Indeed. But I think it sounds like we all have fond memories of Choplifter. Oh, yes, I was a big fan. Absolutely. Are either of you referring to specifically to the Apple II version or the Coin-Op arcade version or the Xbox remake, Super Nintendo? Oh, I will not talk about the Coin-Op arcade version. <laughs> I think you just did, sir. What is your beef yeah, with that? The, because the Apple II version is the version to play. I think my my friend Adam had an Apple II and, and uh, before I, I had my, my 2C and we would play Choplifter for hours and I think that that game really made the most of uh, what was possible uh, and, uh, of the Apple II, the two hardware. I think uh, it's 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 a great version of uh, the game and, and the, I don't know, the, the arcade version did, didn't do it for me. Really? You feel that in the move from the Apple II to the more powerful arcade cabinet, it actually got worse? That's my opinion, yes. Interesting. I had a hard time making the jump from the Apple II to the arcade as well, simply because for whatever reason, the game controls. I, I couldn't. I couldn't get the game controls down on the on the arcade. It didn't fly the same. The chop. The helicopter didn't feel the same, and and um, it was a very frustrating experience for me. I don't think I've ever actually come across an arcade choplifter machine. I don't remember seeing it at Fun Spot or at Pinball Wizard, both of which are in New Hampshire. 
It's been a long time since I've seen a, a cabinet. On the Apple II version, the sprites of the hostages that you're trying to save, aren't those the same as the villains, or the hero, rather, in Loadrunner? They are, yes. Yeah, and, and I remember after a while I got I would get bored playing Choplifter, but I didn't feel like doing anything else, so I would just shoot down the, the guys I was supposed to be rescuing. Sadist. <laughs> Honestly. It's terrible. Well, well I'm sure yes. they didn't care. Hmm. <laughs> Probably not. Uh, you know, there's another game, yet another game, being remade that you guys mentioned last month, which was Shadowgate. Mm, I, yes. And I don't need to explain this game from scratch because you and Jeff already did a great job of that, but I do want to provide a brief follow-up, which is that they met their fundraising goal. Yay! Uh, funding ended uh, around November 26th, and they were asking for 120000 which is fairly modest compared to some of these half-million-dollar games. They got 137, which reaches their first stretch goal, which was 130. They had two other stretch goals of 140 and 150. They didn't reach either of those. Most of the goals were for every extra $10,000, they'll add another layer to the game, another area to explore, like another tower, another dungeon, whatever. Sure. So they'll be, so they'll be adding one of those as well as some rooms that were originally supposed to be in the game and were missing. It was interesting. I played this game on the 8-bit Nintendo, and a lot of computer ports to consoles weren't very popular, yet the creators of Shadowgate say that it was on the Nintendo that the game found its most popularity. That's where most people played it and remember it from, which surprised me. In one of their emails to backers, they had said that backers above a certain level would get a bonus in the game that was an optional classic interface so you could make the uh, UI, but not the game itself, look like the old 8-bit Nintendo version. About two minutes later, they sent an email out to their backer saying, we've changed our minds, we're withdrawing that bonus. That's a bummer. Yeah, I, I'm not quite sure I understand why. I think they just wanted to provide a more consistent experience, which means staying with a modern look and making that available to all gamers, regardless of their pledge level. But I think that would have been a neat bonus. I, I don't know this game that we're talking about at all. Shadowgate was a, a an Apple II GS and Macintosh game, at least on the Apple side of the house. It, I, don't, I don't think it ever appeared on the 8-bit Apple II series. Hmm. So unless you stuck with the Apple II through through the through the 2GS, it, it probably wouldn't have been familiar. No, it's, I'm sorry, I got nothing. Yeah, the same company also released Deja Vu and The Uninvited. Do either of those ring a bell? No. Moving on. Another, another classic game remake. Oh my goodness, they're coming out of the woodwork. This one we've talked about before, but it's actually come out now. Karataka. No, I'm mispronouncing that. Karateka. Now this is one that you've actually had a chance to play and review, is that right? I would call it more of a preview, because I didn't pay for the full game. I only downloaded the demo. And what'd you think of the demo? I thought it was awful. Oh. I found the graphics and sound lovely, and the nods to the classic game appropriate and fitting, but the gameplay was dull as heck. That's disappointing. Well, Metacritic seems to agree with me. Right now it has a score of 62%. Oof. Scores fall into one of three categories broadly, positive, mixed, or negative, and 62% is in the mixed category. So would you say that that perhaps Jordan spent too much time with his nods to the previous generation of Karateka and, and not enough time on making a good game now? I don't think it was nostalgia that got in the way. I think he just was intent on creating a kind of game that people didn't want to play. 
<laughs> wow. <laughs> you make it sound so deliberate. <laughs> well, you know, one of the nice things about being an indie gamer is that you're not trying to please the masses. You're first and foremost creating the kind of game that you want to play. Sure. And that's a huge benefit to not having to work with a major publisher who's worried about the bottom line. Uh, in this case, unfortunately, I think Jordan Mechner just m missed the target that most of his audience was hoping he'd hit. Uh, this is not really a fighting game. It's very passive and reactionary where you approach a guard, you wait for him to attack, and different guards have different cues by which they do so. They tense up their muscles or they their face twitches or whatever. And you hit the block button, and then you hit the attack button. And then you wait for them to attack again so that you can block again and you can attack again, and that's it. There's really very little opportunity for a player to show initiative or creativity. That's, uh, yeah, that's disappointing. <sighs> exactly. <laughs> well, that's that's an upper. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's end on an... I'm sure you've all played some iteration of the Ultima series. Of course. Sure. There was an Apple IIGS remake of the very first Ultima. I remember, I think Joe Cohn was selling it, and I got a copy of it for Christmas way back in the day. I think it's probably the only Apple II game I've ever gotten as a Christmas gift. I'm not sure I ever actually got around to playing it, but the soundtrack was provided by an Apple II artist named Tony Gonzalez. Mm -hmm. I don't have his full credits in front of me. He contributed to many other projects, though. And unfortunately, he recently passed away. Yeah, I saw that. It's uh, sad news. He, uh, this message was posted to the Apple II enthusiast group on Facebook by an Apple II user named Sean Quick. Now, I both emailed Sean and went looking on Legacy.com for more information about Tony's passing. Sean did say it was from cancer, but I was wondering, is there some place where we can send condolences or donations or are, are there next of kin? I didn't get a reply from Sean, and I didn't find an obituary, so I don't know what more there is to be said on this subject. But uh, it looks like Tony was on Facebook. He had only... Uh, two friends mutually with me, Tony Diaz and Jerry Ellsworth. So I don't think he went to Kansas Fest or was necessarily an active member of the modern Apple II community. Chances are, if you've played some Apple II GS games with a really good soundtrack, it might have been one of his. Yeah, it's been a while since I've seen his name pop up in uh, active conversations. I know a few years back, I actually um, I bought his uh, Zip GSX accelerator for the 2GS, and I think his uh, 8 megabyte serious RAM card. So you actually have some of his hardware? Uh, it looks looks to be that way because I remembered, I remembered, you know, I, I knew his name from from the Ultima One projects, uh, but but I also had a dim memory of, of seeing his his name on a package I'd received. So I went back through my old receipts and and um, <clears throat> email correspondences, and I I did buy some hardware from him. Do you remember how you came to be connected with him? Like, was it through eBay uh, or something? They were eBay purchases. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Huh. Well, I'm glad that at least one of us had some personal exchanges with him, even if it was just financial. Well, yeah, there wasn't a whole lot of interaction. I mean, he, you know, I paid for it. He sent it. Uh, I sent him a note, said, hey, it's here. Thank you. And he said, you're welcome. And that was about the end of it. Right. But it just it makes him a little bit more real to you than it, he was to me because I unfortunately never had the pleasure. I think if I were to go back through my old... CompuServe, Genie, or Delphi archives, I might find some messages from him. But, again, he's not somebody who made a personal impression on me. Yeah. yeah it's, like I said, I think it's been a long time since he's been really active in the community. Still, it's 
It's unfortunate, as Tony Diaz pointed out, we're just going to be seeing more and more of these as the years go by. Yes, unfortunately, it happens to all of us at some point. I mean, we, uh, in the last, you know, two or three years, have lost Joe Cohn, Ryan Suinaga, Stan Marks, and now Tony. And going back before that was Gary Utter and some other people. Steve Jobs. But we do thank Tony for all his contributions, and, and we hope that his legacy lives on in the many soundtracks he provided to our community. What's it worth to you? Hold on to your wallet as we look at the latest Apple pickings. We have a couple of eBay items bucking the recent trend on Open Apple. We only have a couple to talk about this time, so Yay! we'll start off with one that's uh, sort of made some waves around the retro computing community. Uh, this is the Andro Topo 2 robot, Apple IIe sending unit software, and it looks like the Apple IIe is actually included with the the auction. Now, this auction has already ended, so you can't bid on it. It finished with a winning bid of $1,836, and it shipped from Palo Alto for $119. And the reason that the shipping is so expensive is because that robot is actually uh, fairly large. This looks like a fairly complete package if you're looking to get into uh, robotics on your Apple II. Um, like I said, it comes with the, the Topo 2 robot, which d- was designed by Nolan Bushnell's company, Androbot. And it says it has all the items needed to program, control, and interact with the robot. Uh, the auction includes the following, the Andro Topo 2 robot, the Apple IIe computer, monitor, disk drive, and controller card, the software, uh, the sending unit, and copies of the original manual, uh, all about fourth, the fourth guide. So it looks like you program this thing using the fourth language. All of the cables, cords, uh, power, and power plugs. And why did this auction make waves? The Retro MacCast guys picked it up, and I've seen it around uh, on a few of the Retro Tech sites. Uh, largely, I guess, because you just don't see that many of these things go up for sale anymore. And, and these early robots like this, and the the other... The other, um, I guess there's a larger hobbyist community around the Hero robot that was made by Heathkit. Um, but if you want it on your Apple II, this was the robot that you, you picked. And it looks like this robot came from a company founded by Nolan Bushnell? Yes, called Androbot. Nice. Because he, of course, also founded Atari and Chuck E. Cheese. Indeed, yeah. he's He was definitely quite the entrepreneur um, and started more than just the, the ones that, that everyone knows about. You mean the ones that went bankrupt? <laughs> yes. Huh. I think I think more or less all of his have gone bankrupt. I think bankrupt. they all went bankrupt, yeah. Yep. Wow, what a winning streak he, that guy's got. Well, I didn't say he was a good entrepreneur. I think the uh, demise of Atari wasn't entirely his fault. I think that was more Time well, Warner. Yeah, he was, I think, long gone from that company when it went under. Yes, he was. I'm not sure about uh, where he was with the Chuck E. Cheese debacle. Uh, there's also a YouTube clip um, that's up. I don't know. It's sold, so I don't know how long it's going to be available online. But if you want to see this thing in operation, you can check that out. Yeah, for some reason, when I open this auction listing in Safari, that video pops up at the very top and pretty much blocks the entire auction. Huh, uh, that's but weird because I've got it in Safari and it shows up properly. But you're running Mountain Lion, right? Of course. Yeah, I'm in Snow Leopard. But yeah, the YouTube video has the title IMG3571. So if you're searching for Androbot or Apple II, you probably won't find it. We won't find it there. So yeah, get to the, you can get to the, the, um, 
video through the auction and then you know there's a, a little link down in the corner where you can watch it on YouTube if you don't want to if you don't feel like watching it on the eBay page. And we'll have links to both in the show notes. Yeah. Um it does say that they uh, the batteries no longer hold a charge so he so the the seller did not include them. Um he doesn't talk about what kind of batteries I, I imagine this thing doesn't just run on a handful of double A's though. Yeah, he said the entire robot was working as of six months ago. Hmm. And that this is one of only 500 that were ever made. Okay, well, that would make it even more desirable for collectors, especially a, a, a kit like this that's very, very complete. Now, I know robotics were a big component of the Apple II and the things that it was one of the many things the Apple II could interface with over, I think, the game port. Uh, Kevin, were th- was the Atari big in robotics at all? You know, I can't think of if any any robots for the Atari. There were all sorts of interesting peripherals, um, you know, computerize and for for scanning images and things to make it talk, but I just can't think of a of a robot yet. And that's why I keep coming back to the Atari with you, not because I'm trying to get the Atari perspective on an Apple II podcast, but because I want to keep demonstrating just how infinitely superior the Apple II was. <laughs> we, just, we just brought you on this podcast to give you a hard time about your choice in retro computing. And this month's straw man, Kevin Savitz. <laughs> We're just really cruel monsters on this show. I see that now. I see that. Do you use eBay much, Kevin? From time to time. I have a couple of saved searches that email me when when certain keywords hit, but uh, it's a massive... I found that there's some good stuff out there, but the amount of time I need to invest in order to find it is is usually not worth it. I imagine with your primary responsibilities as a publisher, you probably don't need to turn to eBay to make much of a profit. Well, with my primary responsibility as a parent, I don't need to waste that much time on eBay. <laughs> but surely every now and then you have some retro computing goods that you want to get rid of and find a good home to them, or alternatively, you're looking to complete your collection and want to find something rare. Right. Yeah. I don't. Uh, I mean, I don't have any problem with eBay. I I was on eBay when when before it was called eBay. Um, I, in fact, I wrote an article about it when it was still called Auction Web, and. Uh, it's it's great it's it's fun to browse but it's just it's just a time suck that that I don't need. You know if you do a Wikipedia search on the word auction web you get redirected to eBay's page. Now see I mentioned that because I had never known it as auction web until I read your book Terrible Nerd. And so I thought, oh maybe this is some like really minute piece of trivia that nobody else knows, but no it's 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 just that I'm a little kid and don't know anything. Well, if you were an Atari user, then you would be much more educated and smart about things oh, in general. Throw him off the show right now. Click. Right. <laughs> well, let me tell you about my eBay usage lately. Sean Fahey emailed me in October regarding a microzine auction that was going on. Unfortunately, that is when I was out of the country and was unable to bid in time. And I told him, oh, I do appreciate you thinking of me and you knowing that I love microzine, which is a monthly academic disc published by Scholastic with various games and edutainment software. Sean wrote back and said, okay, well, how about this auction that's going on live now? And he sent me a link and it was for five issues or five volumes of Microzine. And I briefly looked at it and said, okay, I am missing three or four of those. And it has a buy it now price of, you know, 15 bucks or so. Uh, or maybe that was a bid. I don't remember. No, it was, it was buy it now. And so I just clicked buy it now and had it shipped to me, and it was coming from nearby Connecticut, so I got the very next day. This is a unique instance in which there was something about this auction that I completely missed because I didn't read the item description fully. And that is 
that the five issues came in a plastic box molded specifically for the shape of those issues and with the Microzine logo on the lid. Huh. I'd never heard of this. I'd never seen it. And when it came in the mail, I had no idea what I was opening because I didn't realize this is what I had bid on. But it's gorgeous. And it must be rare or something because, like I said, it's I don't know where else I would have gotten it. The description says it's a file-a-disc anti-static storage case that was available to home subscribers only. And I didn't even know that there were home subscribers of Scholastic. I thought it was probably available only to schools. But whatever this thing is or wherever it came from, I have one now. Oh, neat. Yeah. I mean, so often I'm used... Well, not very often, but I wouldn't be surprised by an item appearing in my mailbox and not being what I was expecting or not being what I was described and me being disappointed or frustrated or feeling cheated. I think that may not be an uncommon experience on eBay, but having a pleasant surprise come in the mail was unheard of in my experience. Maybe you should bid on more things without reading the listing. (laughs) (laughs) Ooh, we can do something like Double Take, which is Carrington's movie podcast where he and a friend control each other's Netflix cues, except I can just go bidding on stuff and have it show up and not know what it is. Let's see what I bought this week. Or you can give me your credit card number and I will bid on things on your behalf. See? That's even more in the spirit of Double Take. That'd be great. I'll have a new surprise waiting for me every day, and once a month, that surprise will be my credit card. (laughs) That's right. I think we have a new open Apple game. (laughs) Oh, boy. Today I bought a goat. Yay. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. As soon as I win the Powerball lottery, I will send you my credit card number. Mm. Just day after day, you're going to find Atari computer components in your mailbox. I guess Goodwill will be the lucky recipient of those. Oh, Man. <laughs> hey, you want them, you buy them. <laughs> you could resell some of those. I remember I had an Atari ST for a little while that somebody gave me, and the, and the keyboard was broken. And I went looking for a replacement, and those keyboards are like hundreds of dollars. Really? Just for the keyboard? Yep. I actually just heard, I think, oh, it was on the uh, Retro Computing Roundtable that they said how sometimes the scrap in the computer, like the gold, can be worth more than the computer is. <laughs> right. Well, on the ST, on this, on the the 520, I think that the keyboard was the computer. Yeah, this was, I think, the Mega ST. Oh, okay. It was that that uh, the keyboard wasn't part of the, the unit. Kevin, has there ever been any talk about resurrecting the Atari hardware or shape in much the way that they recently put a modern computer inside a Commodore 64? I feel so disappointed that there hasn't. I, I mean, Jerry Ellsworth did the 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 Commodore 64 on a joystick, and uh, um, the, the, as you know, I'm sure that the Commodore name has sort of been resurrected into a it's a PC, but it looks like a Commodore 64. And I just haven't seen that much of it in the that sort of thing in, in the the Atari computer uh, computer community. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there is an active community; they just don't seem focused on hardware so much. Um, Kurt Vendel was working on an expansion box for the, the Atari 7800 um, game system, and I, I don't know how that's progressing. It seems like it might have stalled a little bit because he was, he was working on, on, uh, on a book which just came out, which we probably should have mentioned before in the, in the news section, if you allowed Atari things in the news section. Was that a Kickstarter-funded book? Yes, that was a, a Kickstarter-funded book. Uh, it's called Atari uh, Business is Fun, and it just came out within the last couple of days, and you can buy it on, on Amazon. 
and it's it's a forty dollar book, but it's like seven hundred pages or something like that. And uh, it's about the the history of uh, the early history of Atari. And it's the first in a trilogy, isn't it? That's correct. I did briefly speak to Kurt when I was interviewing for a Juice GS article back in March about using Kickstarter for retro computing hobbies. So I think it is appropriate to mention someone who has appeared in an Apple II publication on an Apple II podcast. So thank you for doing that for us. There will be a link in the show notes. And you mentioned the Commodore 64 joystick that Jerry Ellsworth made. Did you realize that you can download and play Commodore 64 games on your Nintendo Wii? Uh, no, I did not. Yeah, they have what they call a virtual console. It's just an eShop where you can download old games for Nintendo, Super Nintendo, Nintendo 64. And a couple of years ago, they expanded that to include other systems like Sega Genesis and Commodore 64. So you can actually buy The Last Ninja for Commodore 64 and play it on your Nintendo Wii and as well as your Nintendo Wii U. Cool. Well... Well, I've got to go do that right now. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> well, fine. You do that, and that will be a fine ending to the Open Apple Podcast. Kevin running off to go play with his games. See you, Kevin. Thanks for stopping by. <laughs> but actually, that is the end of our eBay auction this month, and we don't have any retro views, which is a rare segment for us anyway. So that concludes the December episode of Open Apple. I'm glad that we were able to all of us finally arrange a time to get together because what our audience doesn't know is that this is the fourth time slot that we arranged ourselves around and we were finally able to make it work yeah yes yeah Woohoo! so kevin now that you've published your book and you have your anywhere from 100 to 600 websites up and running what is the next big project you're working on what can our audience look forward to from you honestly i haven't decided yet i'm still working on trying to get publicity from my book and, and trying and sending out review copies and that sort of thing. I've been doing that for a couple of weeks and I don't know what my, what my next, uh, fun project is going to be. I know that's, that's not an exciting answer, but I, it's the, the world is my oyster. I could do any, I honestly, I w I've been thinking about learning a little bit the, the action programming language, which, uh, uh, which is a, uh, programming language for the, the Atari, 800, you know, series. Um, I've always sort of wanted to dabble in that. So I was thinking that maybe I'd, I'd find that bright orange cartridge and, and, and give it a shot for a couple of weeks. I know you did a lot of programming when you were younger. Have you done much programming lately? PHP is my language of choice for doing things, uh, from, from my websites. Other than, than that, no, I haven't done too much programming in the last few years, especially on retro computers. Well, that is a gap that you need to fill, sir. Yes. Yes, I do. Well, you work on producing the next great best-selling piece of retrocomputing software, and then we can have you on the show to blatantly plug it over and over. Excellent. Yay. Fantastic. Like I'm plugging Terrible Nerd. <laughs> I think we have a tradition. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much for being on the show, Kevin. It's been great chatting with you. Uh, we always appreciate having perspectives within and without the Apple II community. I think you suited that build nicely. Thanks. I had a lot of fun. Great. Thanks, Kevin. I'll see you online. This has been the Open Apple Podcast. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback by visiting us on the web at www.open-apple.net. Uh, is Mike back yet? <laughs> what was that? <laughs> what was that?
I'm back. That was me breaking in with Control-C. How poetic. <laughs>